The Old Testament reading for Verate Chele, the fourth Sunday in Advent, is from Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning at the 15th verse. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. The epistle is from Philippians chapter 4, beginning at the fourth verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah! You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Hallelujah! gospel is written in the first chapter of St. John's gospel, beginning at the 19th verse. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him again, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? I need to give, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What you say of yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the, out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had sent Pharisees, they were sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. 
These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Christ. It's a mystery, isn't it? And like the mystery of courage is also the, mix, the mystery of worthiness. Because you see, the next question after you face death, the question that comes after it is, what will happen when you die? Will you be found worthy to enter into heaven, enter into everlasting life? Will you be axios, worthy, or will you not be worthy? It's an interesting word. It's a word that John the Baptist actually applies to himself in the negative in today's gospel lesson. Because those Pharisees and those priests and scribes came out to the Jordan River to see who he was. And they said, are you the, are you the Messiah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. Nope. Are you Elijah? Uh-uh. Well, who are you? I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. That's what I am. Then why are you baptizing? And then he says, well, there's one coming after me who will baptize with water in the spirit whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie, that I'm unworthy to untie, to let loose. Now, that's interesting. I really find that intriguing. I find it really intriguing because you see Jesus. Jesus doesn't agree with John. Jesus says in Matthew 11, he says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. That according to Jesus, John the Baptist is the greatest human being that ever lived. And John the Baptist does not think he is worthy to untie the sandal strap of Jesus. I mean, that's profound stuff, y'all. That is profound stuff. Interesting. Now, there's several ideas, I think, embedded here that are worthy of our consideration when we try to grasp what what John is trying to say to us when he talks about worthiness or axios. Now, worthiness first means literally bringing into balance. Okay, bringing into balance. It means equivalency. So John is saying, I am not equivalent to Jesus. I am not. You cannot balance me next to him. I mean, there He's so much heavier. He's so much more important. He's so much. He comes with so much more than me that there is no way to equivocate the two of us. And the, and the way Paul uses this word in Romans eight eighteen helps us to understand that that is what John is doing because see Paul says in Romans eight eighteen he says that I consider the sufferings of this present time not to be worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. In other words, all the horrible, violent martyrdoms and persecutions and all the hatred shown against Christians for the last two full millennia, because Jesus said, if they hate you, they're going to hate. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. All those persecutions, all those martyrdoms, and John, John the Baptist will become a martyr. Herod cuts his head off. They are not comparable with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In other words, what, we, what, we, what Christ comes to give us is it, so beyond anything the world can dish out that, that there's nothing they can really do to us. Because that's what persecution is all about, is to get you to give up Jesus, deny it. But Jesus saying, but John saying, or Paul saying that, that there's just no comparison between the two. 
There's nothing the world can do that can counterbalance what I have not seen nor ear has heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, things that God has prepared for those who love him. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, this is, this is why St. James, Jesus' own brother, writes, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has for him and promise for those who love him. And this is how John compares himself to the Messiah, to Christ. As far as John is concerned, there is no comparison. None. Key to this idea is also embedded in the word worthy itself, and how it's used throughout the entire New Testament canon. You see, in the New Testament, the thought of merit is excluded from worthiness. You see, you are worthy of the gospel when you receive it. It's kind of like what's going to happen maybe tomorrow night or Tuesday morning with the whole presence thing at Christmas. You know, kids, especially you, I'm talking to you, primarily, but we all were kids once. Kids, do you think you're, you're worthy of those presents your parents are giving you? Do you think you somehow merit those? You don't, you're not worthy of those gifts, the way you behave, the way you treat your parents. And we, we're, and we who are adults, do we merit what our parents gave us? The way we behaved? No. The reason why our parents gave us gave us presents, and the reason why you will receive presents at Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, depending on the tradition of your household, is because of your parents. Not because you're worthy of them. Because you're not. I know some of you. And I know me. And I'm, I wasn't worthy, and still am not, of the kindnesses shown to me by my parents. No, God gives us his grace because of what he wants to do and who he is, not because of what we have done to merit it, because we have not merited anything from God. So, for example, when Jesus sent out the 12, we see this idea of worthiness as well. The 12, he commanded them, saying, Do not take money, nor a bag for the journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff. For a worker is Oxios, he's worthy of his food. So whatever they give you, that's what you take. And then, and then furthermore, in Matthew 10, verse 13, Jesus goes on to say about this word worthiness, that if the household is worthy, his axios, let your peace remain upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Some of you maybe noticed this when we, um, Pastor Layman and myself, visit your, your hospital rooms especially, or your homes, if, you, if you're a shut-in person. Frequently, you may overhear us as we're, leaving the room, will say, let the Lord's peace be in this place. We normally don't say it to you, we just say it. If you haven't heard it, listen for it. Frequently we do this. Yes, in Matthew 22, verse 8, eight as well, there was another good example of oxios or worthiness that I think is worth meriting, worth, worth looking at. There's a wedding feast. And I'm, I'm kind of preparing for that within my own family right now, a wedding feast. And so, you know, there's a lot of preparation that goes into that. In the ancient world, that, that feast was a week-long event. I can't even imagine how, how much effort that would require for a week. And um, 
you know, so this 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 ruler, he uh, you know prepares this wedding feast. It's a huge involved thing, and, he, and it, everything's ready. And he sends out the invitations to remind everybody that the feast is ready. And what do they say? They they don't want to come. They're busy. And so the homeowner says to his servants, those who are invited, the feast is ready, but those who are invited are not axios. They are not worthy. So therefore, go into the, you know, the lanes and the byways and the roads and collect whoever you find, good and bad, and bring them in so that my house might be full. And they did. And so the church was full of people, in other words, because that's the church they're talking about. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. That's why when you come to church, some of the people you like and some of them you really don't like because we're, just, we're a bunch of good and bad people here. And we're all here because God has brought us here, not because we deserve to be here. That's the scripture. Scripturally speaking, we, we don't earn the benefits of Jesus' gospel. We merely receive it as the wedding feast parable makes so very, very clear. Which I think is why John says he is unworthy compared to Jesus because John understands what, what is so easy for us to forget, that we are not worthy. But it's so wonderful to know that even though we're not worthy, Jesus has taken mercy on us and brought us into his, into his holy ark, his place of eternal life. What an amazing thing. The second idea that needs to be emphasized is John's observation regarding the sandal strap, that he is un, un, unworthy to unloosen. Literally in Greek, it's to unloosen. And this is a crucial detail, one that, one that kind of goes over our head. And I say that because we walk on relatively clean streets. So unless you work you know, on a farm or in a zoo or a place where there's a lot of, a lot of animals, right? You, know, you, you really don't, we don't really appreciate what it meant to, to have sandals untied because in the ancient world, everything was either animal power or human legs, and those animals and most streets weren't paved and the ones that were were still covered in filth. And the sewers were generally the streets as well. So all the, you know, so the, the, literally the, the contents of what you walked on in the streets was just unmentionable filth of every description. And, and this is so profound. This would have been shocking. For John to say this in the ancient world was shocking. Because even a slave in the Roman world, was not required to untie his master's sandals. And so John is saying, I am below even a slave compared to the Messiah. That's how unworthy I am. Now, why would he say that? You know, because psychologically today we'd say, oh, that's, he's got such a poor self-image. Why would, why would he say that? Well, the reason he would say that is because he's trying to inoculate us against a very, very dangerous thing. You see, we humans have a tendency to want to make more of our religious leaders than we should, or our political leaders than we should, but really religious leaders in this context here. You know, come to church to meet our pastor. Don't come to church to meet the pastor. Come to church to hear the word, receive the sacrament. And so he's wanting to inoculate the people to make them understand that, that, that the clergy are not important. What is important is Jesus Christ and what he comes to do. That is what's important. 
You know, do not put your trust in princes, even princes of the church. And there are several crucial reasons for this. First is the scope of the missions. See, John the Baptist's mission is very narrow. It is just the Jordan River area. It's just kind of, you know, around the Jordan River, it, you know, people kind of people come to him. But he kind of stays stationary. He kind of stays right there at the Jordan. And primarily, he is baptizing and, and, and hearing the confessions of the Hebrews, the ethnic Hebrews. That's pretty much where he's at. Whereas, whereas Jesus' reach, Jesus in his own ministry goes to the, the Galilee and Judea, but he also goes to Decapolis, which is a Gentile area. He's even up in Syrophoenicia and kind of little pieces of Syria too. And then if you, if you extrapolate his ministry out through his apostles, his reach is global. I mean, Thomas goes to India. Some of the apostles are thought, or at least their followers, go all the way to China. It's global from sea to sea. Second of all is the content of their ministries. John represents primarily law, and law in terms terms of moral law, or ethical law, or religious law. I mean, when when the people come out to him at the Jordan, right, what does he say to them? Oh, welcome welcome to church. I'm glad you're here today. No, no, he says, brood of vipers, who warned you? To flee the wrath that is that is to come. Already the axe is laid at the root, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be thrown into the to, to the unquenchable fire. Wow, he's a hard guy. And and when John baptized people, they he baptized them to the, the confession of their sins. Matthew three verse six. So John and, and then John also is declared of God's word. Whereas Jesus, he doesn't merely declare God's word. He is God's word. He is the one who was in the beginning, the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And because he is the enfleshment of God, the word, his baptism doesn't merely, isn't merely an acknowledgement that, you, that we sin and we want to do better to the community. His baptism actually gives the forgiveness of sins. His baptism actually gives us the gift of the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We saw that first service. Little Reagan Eileen was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and received Everlasting life, because the content of Jesus' baptism is so much more than John's. And John understands this. He understands it. He understands that when Jesus speaks, he speaks the law and the gospel. And unlike John's word, John is a prophet, right? So a prophet speaks God's word, but Jesus speaks his own word. That's why the, the teachers eventually just stopped asking him questions. He'd burn them. Right? They'd say something like, is it, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason? And Jesus would be like, from the beginning it was not so. Moses gave you divorce because you're hard. Or Jesus, they would say, well, you've heard it written. Thou shalt not murder. I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother. Right? May already be guilty of murder. To kind of conflate a little bit. 
No, Jesus' words don't describe reality. You know, that's what our words do. We describe reality. We say, oh, the tree is green and the, and the cookie is whatever, red, and the, you know, and the, and the candles are purple and pink. But Jesus' word creates the reality it describes. And so if Jesus is standing outside of Lazarus' tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth, the man is alive, not like some zombie, but he's flat out alive. In the beginning, God says, let there be light, and there's light, and there's not the sun, the moon, there's stars for several more days. Go figure that mystery out. No, they're not the same. They're not equivalent. And John understands this, and that's why he says, I am not axios. I am not worthy. We see this final unworthiness, worthiness paradigm shown in their deaths. Like I said, very soon John will be beheaded by Herod Antipas. And while dying as a martyr to the faith is the greatest thing a believer can be honored with, and I don't want to, I don't want to diminish John's service to, to the word and to Christ. Ultimately, John the Baptist's death is only John the Baptist dying. But Jesus Christ's death, his life to the world. When he dies, we all now can live. That's the reason we don't bury our dead in, in cities of the dead like the Romans. We, we bury our dead in cemeteries because the word semeon means to sleep. It's the place of the sleeping ones because they will be raised. There will be a resurrection because Jesus says, because I live, you shall live also. His, his death and his resurrection are so much more profound. John still is in his grave. He still waits the resurrection on the last day. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. And that's why John the Baptist understands that he is not worthy to untie Jesus' sandal. And when we understand the mystery of who the baby born in Bethlehem is, then we understand what John is talking about in the mystery of unworthiness. In the name of Jesus, amen.